So hi, hi Sam, thanks so much for having me. I'm Hannah Bent and I'm here to talk to you um, on the Right Way podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here. Hello everyone, good day to you. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Right Way podcast program. It's me, your host, Samuel Elliott. Today I had the incredible good fortune of speaking to a new up-and-coming writer, debut novelist, Hannah Bent, speaking to me about her debut novel, When Things Are Alive, They Hum. Now this is one of those books where you'll, you'll get it uh, maybe once a year, if that, and it's a novel that deservedly so generates an incredible amount of buzz prior to even being published. And this is indeed the case with Hannah Bent and her novel, When Things Are Alive, They Hum. So I think that that can be contributed to two different factors. One, that it totally deserves the universal acclaim that it's received thus far, because the story is just so beautiful and so beautifully written. Two, I think that that's also because it is one of the first books that's come out with the new kids on the block, the new publishing house, Ultimo Press, Sydney-based Ultimo Press. For those of you not in the know, they've, uh, they've just come out. They've mainly been toting this as one of their, their champion books, deservedly so. I would too if I was in their shoes because it's such an incredible novel. Hannah Bennett is such an incredible writer talking about her this particular novel, When Things Are Alive, They Hum, due uh, largely inspired by her own life with her sister, when Things Are Alive, They Hum follows two different sisters, Marlo and Harper. Uh, ostensibly, when the book starts off, they're living in two completely different areas of the world. Uh, Marlo's living in England. Harper's living in Hong Kong with the rest of the family. Harper has uh, Down syndrome, and she has, uh, unfortunately, needs, uh, I believe it's a heart and a lung transplant, transplant uh, in order to, 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 her condition is steadfastly deteriorating throughout the early stage of the novel calling, uh, requiring Milo to kind of come back uh, in a way in which she sort of somewhat um, compartmentalised her life and all the things that she's achieving along with her partner Ollie within England. Uh, and then that sort of sets forth this sort of reconnection with this sort of familial, uniquely sisterly bond between the two. This sense of uh, protection that's just pervasive and throughout. There's just so much love in this book. It was an absolute pleasure to read. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear from Hannah uh, talk about her work. So please... Everyone give a big digital round of applause to novelist, writer Hannah Bent talking to me about her debut novel, When Things Are Alive, They Hum. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real honour to be here. That's so nice of hearing you say that, especially when I had the technical mishap with the, with the audio then, but you, you endeavoured... You got reinforcements and uh, look, we're here now. So I'm a happy camper. Yeah. yeah, me too. Awesome. Look, normally, I'm not sure how many episodes you listen, you've listened to of the show, but what I normally like to start with is to hear where the idea has come from. But it's, you're quite open as to where the idea has come from. It came from your sister, Camilla. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that first and foremost as to when this sort of uh, idea of writing this uh, fantastic novel came from. Um. Look, it's, it's been over 10 years um, in the making. It was a really long process. I remember um, I was in art school at the time, probably around 2005, 2006 in London. And I remember sitting on the bus, um, traveling into um, uni and reading the paper and reading a story about um, a young girl who was denied a heart transplant um, because of her disability, it seemed. So... I remember I had already started working on this novel. It was in its very early um, form. And I remember thinking, gosh, that adds an element to this that um, I thought was really interesting and created a really interesting 
kind of uh, moral and ethical dilemma. And um, obviously, you know, this, this story comes from a very personal place. It's inspired by my sister Camilla, who lives with Down syndrome. And when she was um, 16, she contracted encephalitis. So she really went from being this wonderfully vivacious, um, intuitive, funny uh, performer. She loves to perform. She's always in school plays. Um, and she performed like anywhere she could, whether it be at the dinner table or, or like kind of on the street or wherever. Um, so overnight, completely changing. And um, it was a really long, it took a long time for me to realize that I was grieving the sister that I knew and struggling with feelings of um, not being able to help her. I mean, I couldn't bring her speech back. I couldn't bring her former self back. So I think that's kind of part of what drove um, me to write this novel um, amongst many other different reasons associated with being a sibling or someone who has a disability and um, also growing up in Hong Kong with us you know, at the time we were, there was a lot of discrimination as well. So there was a lot of kind of different factors fueling me to write this. Tell me a little bit about, because you mentioned about wanting to sort of imbue the novel with Camilla's gifts. And I mean, the novel has been accurately described or surmised by Trent Dalton as a gift in and of itself. But I was fascinated when I read this quote because I was like, there's, there's so many, it is a gift of a novel, but I wanted to know from your own words what the, the gifts were of Camilla's that you wanted to sort of include within the novel. Look, I think I'm still learning to this to this day new things that she brings me. Um, but I think, you know, just to name a few, um, she really taught me kind of this attention to detail um, in the world that surrounds me. And um, I said many times before, like I, t I take a morning walk every day and there's so many things that I notice that brings me great pleasure and joy. And I, I really feel that I uh, learned this from Camilla. Um, for example, I mean, I just love the way old trees look and um, you know, the way light catches certain things. And, um, you know, Camilla would marvel at these small things for hours and you know it was, it was really wonderful to be around and kind of by osmosis I think I picked up on some of that she's also taught me I think um that you know where there is a lot of beauty there can also be a lot of hardship and in some ways they can be uh, both sides of the same coin and um she's taught me a certain resilience and being open to both experiences in life whether it's Kind of the hardest stuff or the happiest stuff um and for me i think that was a huge lesson and i still feel that i'm learning more and more about that there's so much beauty in in the novel and these lovely passages particularly what you're kind of talking about there some of the some of my favorite parts were sort of the gardens and the pagoda and all those sort of scenes centered around that and there is just such an appreciation for beauty in the way in which you kind of accurately captured it there um Talk me a little bit about through the perspectives, because obviously it's Marlo and Harper, um, that like two two plays off each other with the perspective. Was that always the intention when you first started writing, and given that's been sorry gestating for so long, or was it one character's perspective originally? Look, it actually was Marlo's perspective um, initially, and and I I wrote this um, in third person as well. Um, I wrote this kind of omniscient. I, I've, this has been through so many different drafts. Um, and I think I eventually 
settled on the Harper Barlow perspective. Um, and, and, and I think probably for very personal reasons, actually, possibly in part to do with the fact that um, I felt in a way that, I mean, I don't want to be presumptuous and say that I, I can give my sister a voice, but it gave mm. me some comfort um, to know that, um, and Harper is not my sister, but I, I felt in some way that, that I was working through that process of feeling like she didn't have a voice and I was trying to give something back to her. Um, I also felt that growing up, there was um, not very much literature about the experience of being a sibling to someone who lives with a disability. And, and what was available felt really stereotypical. Mm -hmm. There wasn't very nuance. Um, there's that whole thing of, you know, if you've got a sibling who's got a disability, they kind of take up all the attention you're left to kind of deal with things yourself. And that wasn't my experience. So I also wanted to write from both perspectives to give um, voices to that. And then finally, I feel um, that the two perspectives were like yin and yang. Mm. Um, they're two sides of the same coin and um, I think they complement it. Well, for me, I, I was trying to um, get them to complement each other in that way. That's very well put with the yin and yang. That's a, that's a great analogy to describe it because I totally agree with that. The, and I was going to ask you about that also because there there really is no, from, from me, like contemporary fiction or otherwise that I've kind of come across where there has been a person, um, a, a sibling depicted with a, with a sibling that has Down syndrome. And I wondered about that then when you ventured out to, to obviously write this and you, it comes from a place of earnestness and experience. And I, I get that. But um, how did you go about the actual writing this? That there's such a, because they, the two characters, perspective characters, their voices are so uh, not disparate, but they're different. It's not like it's one person that's the same. And I wondered about how you went, and go, went about writing from Harper's perspective like that to give it this, this level of earnestness that you otherwise wouldn't have. Look, I mean, I felt I, it was, it was actually funnily enough, the easier voice for me to write. Oh, really? Um, okay. Um, the, the kind of um, lyricism and um, the immediate way that she accesses the world and um, the beauty that she sees and her way of playing with language. I, I had such enjoyment um, writing that. However, I was very conscious and I've, I, I hope I've done this justice not to perpetuate any stereotypes um, mm. of, of um, being someone who's living with a disability um, and try to be very sensitive um, to the fact that, um, yes, Harper has a disability, but she's uh, also her own person. And that to me was um, just as interesting as Marlo. So um, I, I, I did also talk to my sister's friends a lot. Um, to my sister has very limited speech now, but um, you know, I, I, I um, spoke to them and um, yeah, and, and listening to them kind of in the background, um, I'm sure informs the way I wrote as well. It's interesting and I can totally understand as to why you'd want to um not have not fall victim to sort of um a stereotypical sort of depiction you never did and i feel like maybe that's that's attributed to largely your lived experience which would be um kind of enable you to to, to craft that much more sort of um 
tastefully and considerately than say someone say say myself that has that uh, does not have that sort of lived experience and I, that would make me naturally reluctant to, to to do that as well tell me a little bit about when we first meet Molly because she undergoes quite a massive transformation throughout and the way in which it's kind of uh, mentioned a couple of times including by her father about living her own life so she's kind of uh completely almost not severed ties but she is living her own life on the other side of the world and that's that's an interesting standpoint to find a character in the beginning of it um yeah i think this draws back to marlo's history um and harper's with losing their mother at such mm. a young age and marlo's um kind of reluctance to process her grief and um you know also taking on the role of um mother in the relationship with well, assuming it, I, I'm not sure that Harper would necessarily have expected that of her, mm. but um, assuming that role and then kind of feeling the burden of it and wanting to find herself as separate from that. Um, so that journey was very interesting to me, but then also having to come back and kind of face the stuff that she had been running from and piece her identity together um, more wholly um, throughout the journey of the novel, that was also really important. Tell me a little bit about this, the, the sisterly bond, because there's, there's, there's a couple of components about it, but I, I just wanted to get a kind of a prelude to that with you sort of giving an overall sort of overarching overview of, of the sisterly bond that sort of endures a lifetime. Um, so sorry, your, your question was, um, why, why did I, why, why did I like, why did I choose to write from that perspective? Exactly, yeah, in terms of the perspective. Um, look, I think a sisterly bond is something that can be um, applied quite universally to a lot of different relationships, mm. uh, in part because of some of the um, emotions that are explored and um, the closeness of that bond. And um, um, and also, like, as I mentioned earlier, it was uh, really important to me to explore the sibling relationship with someone mm. who had a disability. Um, and, and, you know, um, I hope kind of look at how um, this is in many ways just like any relationship. There's nothing, um, although it has its, um, its special kind of um, factors involved with it, there's nothing that um, should in some way separate it from a normal experience of being someone who's got a sibling. I didn't say that very well, but no, 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 you did. You did. And I mean, like it was, it was because I, I did. I, I'm, it's interesting you say that, Hannah, because I feel that it was, it was a little bit unique in terms of this sisterly bond that, that it was obviously once Marla returns um, to her sister's side, then it's kind of informed thereafter of her sister's worsening condition. But the main thing in which sort of captured my attention with that, was how there was a, a familial obligation that had been obviously promised um, from Marlo to to her mother. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that as well, because that sort of shifts too. And I wanted to ask you about when you thought that it was beyond merely, well, it's not merely, it's still take, not taken lightly, but this familial obligation. And when that is ceased, or when that has ceased to be the primary motivation for Marlo to do what she does, and it's more coming just from a place of pure love rather than feeling like she has to uphold her duties or whatever she's promised her mother. Mm, I feel it's quite complex. I feel that that familial um, duty is, is, is a strand of it, but mm. I also feel 
um, unresolved grief is another strand, um, which propelled her on this kind of almost madcap journey in mm. a way um, to desperate lengths. Um, and, and also a, a real kind of drive to run away from grief and, and losing someone who um, um, means so much to you. And, and I feel um, for particularly Marlowe, because she's so kind of scientific and rational, Harper for her is that kind of um, key to this, this other aspect of, of living and life, um, which she had trouble accessing herself. And so um, I do feel that was, for me, while writing, that was another um, reason that propelled Marlowe into um, going to China. Mm. And look, you've just kind of touched on it a little bit there, the difference of their minds and their personalities. But I found that with this bond, uh, at least from the outset, seemingly it's, it's Marlowe uh, supporting Harper. But the more... Uh, I read, or as the story progressed, I thought there was elements of to show that you've had certain scenes which showed that Harper supported Marlowe just as much. I felt that that had not not painstakingly been crafted, been kind of seamlessly fused in there. But there was one in particular that stood out in relation to the, the shower scene or finding her like that. And that, to me, uh, was the most standout moment, I felt, at least at that point in the story, where it's to show that Harper nurtures and supports Milo as much as the other way around. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that if I was kind of on the money there or, or whatnot. Absolutely. Um, that was a big part of what I was um, looking at, um, exploring and conveying. Um, Harper is, is a huge part of um, kind of Milo's emotional life in a mm. way and, and in, in a way is the roots to her tree um it's it, it it was very essential for me to um write that and also in many ways to give harper her own agency um you know it it ultimately is her choice whether she has a heart transplant or not and um um it, it was important for me to um really give that voice as well I like that you've mentioned, touched on there a little bit of the um, giving Harper her own agency because I certainly felt that uh, sustained throughout that it wasn't such a case and this is what you can get, um, not so much within, obviously, your example, given its personal life as well has been inspired by it, but you'll find when within certain novels and, and stuff like that how there's a, there's a character that's ill that is purely meant to be used as a... Uh, plot device to, you know, terminally die in the most miserable way imaginable. Whereas you have set up her life there, uh, particularly, and obviously another favourite component of mine throughout was the love story between her. And now sometimes it's pronounced Louis and sometimes it's pronounced Louis. I'm going to say Louis because I'm going off Louis Faroe type pronunciation, but I wanted to get it from you. Louis because he's American. So it's the uh, American pronunciation. It's pronouncing it in my mind's ear, my mind's brain the entire time wrong. But uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about that because we have kind of touched on that with this agency afforded. So it wasn't merely a character that's that's born to die in that regard and as ghost as that sounds. No, absolutely. And I, I feel this touches upon something that my sister has, has given me, um, which is that broadly speaking, you take the good with the bad. Mm. Um, you know, you can get... A, dealt a bad set of cards but it's kind of what you do with that and um 
through some of my sister's darkest hours, she has brought so much, I mean, without the sounding cliche, she brought a lot of light. Um, and so Harper and, and Lewis were really um, the embodiment of that for me. And, and you know, growing up, um, I, I know a lot has changed now, particularly in Australia, but growing up, I never, you know, my sister did go to a center and, and we were always told that she wasn't allowed to have a relationship there. And that was a very important thing. And, you know, when she developed feelings for somebody, we were told that we weren't allowed to discuss that with her and she wasn't allowed to discuss that there. And so, um, you know, it was quite an awful experience. And, um, and she did have this big burning love affair with somebody. And I wanted to give that experience um, voice as well and, and the respect that it deserves, um, just like anybody who's fallen in love. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it, it was, again, it was something that I, I could totally see what you're talking about. And I can see that easily happening in sort of certain institutions, particularly with some antiquated views there from back in the day um, and how that might have changed. Um, also with Lewis, and I like that there was, uh, again, uh, and this is admittedly something that I'm a layman in, but in terms of um, the different different types of Down syndrome people, I liked also that you that you showed that Lewis was was different. Um, in that regard. And I want you to talk a little bit about that as well, because again, it felt organic without feeling contrived. It was just merely who he is as a human being, a completely three-dimensional one. Right. I mean, um, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Um, Lewis is not that great at math, but, you know, he's great at telling the time and he's, he's great at um, interpersonal relationships. And, um, you know, I was really just speaking to uh, how we're all different. Having said that, um, there is a spectrum with um, Down syndrome. You can be what they, they call low functioning and high functioning um, and sit somewhere on that spectrum. I personally don't like these labels very much. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think in some ways we all sit on some form of spectrum. I mean, I'm terrible at math, um, but I'm... <laughs> I'm okay at writing. So, you know, um, well, I hope I'm okay at writing, but you know, like it's, it's, um, it was important to me to kind of point that out in a way that, um, didn't, um, isolate somebody who had a disability as, mm. as, as just having, um, uh, like high or low functioning. I mean, I wanted it to be something that was more complex. Very much, and yeah, and you were just to just to chime in there. You're much more okay than okay at writing. I don't know, I think that, uh, that that bears mentioning that needs to be said. Far be it from me. Go go to someone like old mate Trent Dalton. But, uh, so, and one of the main themes, particularly towards the the latter half of the novel, that I want to talk a little bit about as well, is this conflict between people wanting to do what they think is the best for someone that they love as well as respecting that person that they love's wishes, which sometimes clash or are diametrically opposed. And I want you to talk a little bit about that as well, because that was a main thing that I sort of uh, latched on to as well. I think because this novel comes from such a personal place, that was actually one of the hardest for me to write. Um, mm. Because in order to for Marla to respect Harper's wishes, she had to essentially let Marla go. I mean, Harper go. Sorry, and um, 
I mean, that brought me to a very um, emotional place while I was writing. Of course. And, um, and I think one, it was one of the reasons it took me so long to complete. Very much so. And with that, I mean, that was, I guess, when you boil it down to its most basic, purest form and the theme that's throughout is that love prevails and love powers us through all. So that can include reconciliation, that can include changes within one's own character, even later in life. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and if that was the case, if I kind of touched on that with this, with this love being this all-encompassing and all-powerful sort of uh, motivating factor. Absolutely. Um, it's really well said. Thank you. Um, nice. Yeah, it, uh, look, it was something that got me through um, my personal experience um, with my sister and kind of the hardships that have followed um, her illness since. Um, it's, it's something that she's taught me. I mean, she, you know, she, I mean, someone could, be terribly um, discriminatory or, or or mean to her, but she, yet she will find a way of um, not submitting to that, but yet seeing the goodness in people um, uh, despite that. Um, and it's something that I think can be quite healing in a way. Um, you know, if you can hold on to love and um that beautiful thing that kind of binds us all it it helps um well it helps me process um some very difficult emotions i felt that another sort of um way in which you you investigated or a, a theme in which kind of you yourself latched on to and wanted to explore was prior to reaching to that point because that's obviously the ultimate end goal is to to accept one's wishes and, and then you know being enriched forevermore for that is the lengths in which people can be willing to go to to preserve or protect those they love as well which can have uh very negative ramifications as we as we kind of see towards the tail end of the novel but obviously there there's light at the end of the tunnel but i wanted you to talk a little bit about this as well because that was a, a sort of darker thing which you didn't flinch away from and you kind of delved into yeah um you know there, there have been some very dark moments i mean my sister's um brain has changed in many different ways and um I think you know it took me to some desperate places within myself and that kind of desperation I think is what fuels Marlo Marlo and I are not the same character but um the the journey obviously has been inspired by what I've gone through and and so um I guess I was looking at how you can kind of be on the verge of madness essentially because you're so overcome with emotion um, and um, gripping so tightly um, to wanting things to be a certain way. In my case, I to hold on to half his life. How has the process been? Because I mean, obviously, you've mentioned Hannah as well that it's it's been in the writing for uh, the gestation, as you called it. I think in the acknowledgments for ten something years. I mean. Given that it's a lot, so much of it is so grounded within your own life. How um, how have you found that process? Because I would imagine it would be in in some respects um, uh, confronting, particularly for for being uh, for it to go for so long and so many redrafts and stuff like that. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I learned a lot writing this novel. Um, there were some times where I thought I really lost faith kind of in my ability to write it. Um, mm. And that's where, like, you know, getting um, the Ray Cop Award was so amazing because it, it gave me confidence to keep going. Um, and and also connecting with other writers kind of, um, you know, my, my writers my writers group and, and my friends who are writers um, also kind of fueled me along this journey. Um, but I think ultimately it was just wrestling with, um, because it was so closely tied to my experience, wrestling with my own um, experience. And and I, the part three I finished um, uh, just before I was about to give birth. So I think having that time, time kind of limit, you know, wanting to complete one thing, fully give birth to one thing before giving birth to another was also very helpful. <laughs> Wow, intense. Okay. So, yeah, because it's interesting because like what I kind of always like to touch on as well within, within the podcast is what some of the, some of the biggest challenges that, uh, that one has faced in order to sort of prevail and get to this point where they're, where they're talking on the show about, uh, about their latest work. So for you, it seems like it was, there was a few, was there a few points or was there one particular period where you were like, it, it was really either continue onwards or, put down, not revisit kind of thing. Yeah, to be really uh, open with you, um, it actually wasn't till much later in the process that uh, I realized I was writing about the grief I had um, in losing the Camilla that I knew. And so I got very stuck at one point. I had massive writer's block and I, I kind of didn't know what I was writing and that the endings I had written were, were, just didn't feel right. And um, uh, I just really lost my way with it. And I mm. think that's because I wasn't fully aware of um, what was going on in myself. And, you know, Catherine Heyman was my mentor, mentor for a while. And she said that every good book has something to teach you. And this book certainly did for me. And I think once I got a glimpse of what um, I needed, I was able to finish as well. It's amazing that you were able to push forward like that. How was it balancing? Because it's not obviously completely a true story. It's not completely fictional as well. How was the how was the fusion of the two? Did you find that was that liberating in that there were certain elements that you wanted to further explore that didn't happen in real life? Was it constricting in that somehow you found bound to represent certain stories or certain elements as as exactly as they were? How how did you go? What was like that like? I think it was a bit of both. Um, mm. Constricting in the sense that, um, you know, there's things about my sister that I did not want to write about, partly because she doesn't have the ability to tell me if she's okay with um, me speaking about that. Mm. Um, and so I didn't want to cross that line. Um, but then in some senses, you know, in the work of fiction, I mean, I would never take my sister on a journey into China to get an organ. Um, mm. So that, um, although I might do other things, that that particular uh, facet um, was a great kind of vehicle for me to explore the desperation that I felt. So I think it was a kind of a push-pull between the two. And obviously you've mentioned a little bit of um, uh, the, the period and how long it, it, it took to write. Did the... 
because one thing that can obviously no matter what you're writing be it's completely fictional or or not did did the characters ever kind of try and establish what that what was going on in their own world to try and take control was that something that you that you had happened experience with certain drafts or not particularly um i don't know if this is going to answer your question but um i write in a very intuitive way and to be honest with you, i didn't uh really realize um I didn't, I, I kind of let the characters kind of just come out mm. and I wrote different scenes and then I would kind of piece them together like pieces of a puzzle. So um, in that sense, I let the characters drive what was happening and each day I would learn something new about the characters. I wrote nearly, um, apart from the spell where I had writer's block, I wrote nearly every day. Mm. So I was always learning something new. Um, and and sometimes I didn't understand what I was writing and it would take a few weeks for me to, um, help myself find its place and sometimes I would write scenes about a character that never made it into the novel but informed the way that I wrote further about them. Um, awesome. Oh, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that because what I feel like I was wondering if potentially it could, uh, if it could have happened given, given the length of it and you know, how involved you were in numerous rewrites, if there was a period where it kind of swelled to the size of, of war and peace and then there was sort of this like severe sort of pairing back of you kind of cherry picking determining exactly what it was that you wanted yeah absolutely and i think in this you know i i feel that um well i hope in in some ways i grew as a writer as well during this time um a lot of what i did during you know over the span of 10 years and, and more was um learning to pair back and mm. learn less is more and um which sounds like a cliche now but um it, it you know really also finding my own voice as a writer what i liked to read um how i wanted to use the words that were coming out how i wanted to kind of rearrange them um you know it was a great time for me to also find myself and um yeah what i normally like to kind of uh, end with is to ask what advice would you give to authors? Uh, mm. But with you um, and your your particular uh, journey, I want to know what advice you would give Hannah to yourself at the beginning of this journey. Oh, take courage. Um, you know, bravery was uh, something that made me finish. I think there's so many times as a writer and um, on my personal journey that I just felt I couldn't couldn't continue. Um, it was it was it wasn't easy this novel to write, and um, I think in whatever way you can find support and you know I I drew a lot on um, you know whenever I was having a bit of a block I would go to an art gallery or um, go see a piece of cinema that I loved and you know, these kind of things really fueled me and kept me going. So um, I think, yeah, looking back, I would remind myself to do those things and just hold on to any courage I can muster to kind of make it to the end. Oh, so well put. And look, I like I got that the entire time that it wouldn't have been an easy novel to write by, by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm so glad to that you did, that you embarked on this, this long and no doubt at oftentimes grueling journey. And then you got to the point where I've now had the immense privilege talking to you, Hannah, because yeah, it was an incredible novel. You've deserved all the universal acclaim that you've gotten and it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you so much. It's um, been really a privilege to be able to speak in this way and um, have you listen. Thank you. Thank you again.
So everyone, that was an incredibly talented author there, Hannah Ben, talking to me about her debut novel, Hugely Well Received, When Things Are Alive, They Hum. Uh, huge thanks again to Hannah for talking to me on the program about such an amazing debut novel. So glad to hear that, uh, that it was such a long journey for her in terms of uh, the writing of the novel, but she stuck with it, prevailed, and uh, came to talk on the program because the... The novel's an incredible one. You need to go out and get yourself a copy. Uh, and to that end, what I'll do, obviously, is put in the link slash bio of this particular description of this episode. Uh, I thought I had my own words there a little bit, but the description of this episode, I will put the link to Ultimo Press, the good folks at Ultimo Press's website, so you can get your hands on a copy there. Uh, in the interim as well, whether you're in Sydney like me and you're in lockdown or you're not, uh, please, I do urge you to... Uh, Support all your local bookstores and book retailers. Go up, buy big, buy large. You're in lockdown. If you're in Sydney, now's the best time to read a bunch of incredible novels because there's a bunch of incredible novels out there. But obviously, first and foremost, start with this particular incredible novel that I had the immense good fortune to speak to the novelist about, When Things Are Alive, They Hum by Hannah Bent. So again, huge thanks to Hannah. Huge thanks to Ultimate Press for publishing an amazing work like this. Um... In the interim, I will also give a big huge thanks to you, listener, for listening to this particular episode and all the preceding episodes that have come up to thus far. The, uh, it, it's, the, the whole endeavor's been going staggeringly well. Uh, wrapping my head around that has been has been tough because there's we're getting up to something like uh, 30 guests so far and I feel like I'm going to have to do a big, uh, big old celebration somehow for 50 guests uh, if I could achieve that this year. I think I'm going about it the right way don't know how i'm going to do that always keen to hear suggestions about how i can so if you if you want to and you give a suggestion of a, a good way of uh, celebrating the, the fanfare of 50 guests on the show within the space of less than a year then uh please hit me up on either the social medias of the facebook uh the right way podcast facebook page or the right way podcast um instagram uh, profile as well Either or would uh, come through to, to yours truly here and then I'd be able to get some ideas that I'd shamelessly pass off as my own. But uh, in the interim, thank you so much for listening to this. If you haven't already, be sure to follow the program on Spotify or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this on. And stay tuned because I've got a hell of a lot more guests coming up and uh, it is uh, such an awesomely cool privilege to talk to so many cool writers and hear what they say about their work. And I'm going to keep on keeping on. I'm going to keep doing that. I'll keep uh, chip chipping away at my own. Uh, long form, short form writing as well. See how that uh, that panders out. But in the interim, all I can do is thank you all, and I hope you're all well and staying safe.